Hi and welcome back. This is Police Stories Podcast, a series of uh, short stories, sometimes, about uh, my 28-year career in the UK police force. This is episode 32 and this is part two um, of, uh, I've titled it Shots Fired. You will uh, almost certainly have to go back and listen to uh, part one of this, the previous episode, to keep, you know, uh, keep yourself right in terms of where we're at to. But I'm going to crack straight on with the story. So in the scenario, we've got this long alleyway that leads down to the train station. It's about one o'clock in the morning. Uh, there's no one else around apart from our armed suspect who is uh, walking up towards us. In fact, he's walked up towards us and there's five of us there now. Um, two in uniform and three in plain clothes. All of us armed, but identifiable, you know, with sort of uh, police hats on, etc., uh, this guy has walked up to around about 30 metres away from us. I can see that he's got an assault rifle and it's pointing at the ground, or what appears to be an assault rifle. He's not shouting, he's not making any noise, but he's refusing to comply at all. We're screaming at him, obviously, to stand still, put your hands up, put the weapon down, etc. All the things you'd expect us to be saying, but it's having no effect at all. But he's not engaging in any way either. And the baton gun is levelled at him. That's a less than lethal option that fires out like a large plastic sort of rubber bullet. Very heavy. Um, the aim point for that is actually the groin. And uh, trust me, you know, if it hit you in the groin, male or female, that is going to really hurt. And it's going to knock you uh, on your backside, basically, which is exactly the plan, which would then give us, you know, options for going forward and dealing with him. The line in the sand has been drawn. It's uh, romantically a dog poo bin that's attached to basically a lamppost. And the decision is made, should he come closer than that, he's within the range of the baton gun, which is about uh, 25 metres, and he's at about 30 metres, and he has stopped. Uh, he's not moving, we've got a police dog with us, but it's just a normal firearms, uh, sorry, it's just a normal police dog, uh, a general purpose dog, rather than a firearms dog. And the big difference is um, a firearms dog will attack on command, whereas a uh, a normal police dog will try to generally attack people that are running or shouting or screaming, that sort of thing. So there's this little bit of a Mexican standoff while we're deciding um, what we're going to do next. We continue with the, the shouts at him, you know, arm police, stand still, uh, put the weapon down, you know, show us your hands, etc. Um, he's just not having it at all. And then at this point, he just turns and runs, runs away from us, flat out sprint. So, of course, the police dog, which is standing beside us, sees this and starts going crazy. Handler quickly says to us, right, he'll, he'll have him now. You know, so we're like, right, release the dog. So dog goes down, big Alsatian, you know, charging down at, you know, I don't know what speed they go, but it's fairly quick and uh, quite an impressive sight. Uh, and they're off away after this guy. He sort of half turns. He's running now, but he half turns and looks back over his shoulder and he sees the dog coming. Now, he stops and stands dead still still pointing the weapon at the floor, doesn't make a sound and just stands there. So, of course, the dog goes charging up to him and does the same, really, pretty much like sits at his feet. But because he's now stopped running and he's not shouting, you know, and he's not doing anything, the dog's just not interested, you know, because its training says, you know, if he's shouting, uh, you know, or running, then by all means, you know, chomp him but it, otherwise don't attack you know and that's how they that's how they're trained so he did nothing the guy just stood there we sort of ran down a bit further and, and got closer to him again um still while providing you know arm cover should he suddenly point the weapon at us um bit of a bizarre situation to be honest with you but 
the dog gets recalled, the guy stands there for a bit more, and then he's off again. You know, he's off and running, almost like, you know, a repeat of, of just what happened. So he sprints off down the hill again, getting closer to the train station down the platform, and the same thing happens. We release the dog again. Um, because actually what happened was he got to the bottom of the alleyway, which was about, I don't know, 50 metres long, something like that. He's turned onto the platform, and he's actually now gone onto the train track. Well, it's quite late at night, so there's hardly any trains coming. Um, but we were told that there'd been contact made with, um, I think it was still British Rail at the time, or certainly whoever the train company was, um, and they had made sure that there was no trains. And they'd also turned off all the power to the track, because at this point the track is electrified, so it has a live rail running down the middle, so obviously we don't want to go anywhere near it. So we had confirmation back that, you know, that was safe. So he's turned right at the bottom of the hill, gone out of our view, and we now know um, disappeared onto the track. And the reason I say we now know is because by now the police helicopter is here and it is circling and filming him at, at the same time. Now, where he was on the track, it's very high embankments built up into steep slopes either side of the track just before it enters a tunnel. And the helicopter was circling and was lighting him up with the spotlight. But of course, because it had to circle and because of the uh, the very steep sides, in, in some respects, the helicopter wasn't helping because it was lighting him up one minute like daylight. You know, they're very, very powerful sort of searchlights. And then as it passed around the other side of the tunnel um, or the embankment got at such an angle, he was, you know, plunged into complete darkness again. So you could not see him at all or it was very difficult to see him. And because... The light was so bright, it was kind of half ruining your night vision because it was going from, you know, daylight to nothing at all, you know, pitch black and then back again. So in some respects, it wasn't helpful. But I know having seen the footage that basically he had run onto the track. But exactly the same thing happened with the dog. As the dog approaches him, he stops running. He doesn't make a noise. And then he just stands stock still, doesn't make a noise, stands there. Dog just kind of sniffs around at his feet and doesn't do anything. And the handler tried to convince the dog, you know, to attack him from a from a distance so that we could bring this to a safe, you know, end. But the dog just wasn't happening. So we recall the dog again. And basically now this guy just walks away from us on the train track towards the mouth of the tunnel, which at this point is about 60 metres away from us, I suppose, maybe a little bit further. There's five of us on the track. We've got uh, my friend, my colleague, who's, don't forget, this is his first ARV shift. Um, he is at the lead because he has a ballistic shield. So he has um, a half height. And I say that because it's only about three foot long. So it covers basically from sort of, you know, if you had your, you know, the, your chin on it, it would cover down to about your waist. You know, that's how much it covers. And it's it's wide enough for one person to get behind. It gives you ballistic cover, cover from fire. But anything else is obviously vulnerable. So we formed into a bit of a, a snake, really, with my pal at the front with the ballistic shield, me second in line, and then another, um, there would have been three others behind me, and we set off after him, but we were all trying to tuck in behind the shield as best we could. Uh, at this point, I said to uh, my pal with the shield, you know, look, if he turns and points at that gun at us at all, I'm going to step to the left of you, and you're going to go deaf because I wanted to make it very clear that, for God's sake, don't step to your left. You know, if he points that at us, you stay exactly where you are and let me step off, because potentially I'm going to take the shot. 
um, if that's what's required. And obviously making the point that the, the gun will be going off right in his ear and he's probably going to, because obviously we're not wearing ear protection at this point, this isn't a range, this is real life. Um, so yeah, the gun's going to go right off in his ear and I thought it'll probably end up deafening him. So we continue off down after this guy. He's now about 40 metres ahead of us. Um, I've got my MP5 kind of in the... Um, it's not the aim position because I'm moving, so I would never have finger on trigger, safety catch on fire if I'm moving. The moment I stop and take up a good stance, then I'd go into the aim position. But at this point, we're just kind of matching him. We're just kind of tracking him. Um, yeah, 40 metres ahead of us. He gets to the mouth of the tunnel and he turns around and faces us. Um, and, you know, all I'm focused on is that gun. You know, it's very clearly or certainly looks like, you know, a large sort of assault weapon. Um, and pointing at the ground at no point as it pointed at us. And therefore, you know, I certainly didn't feel at that point we could justify the shot. So he's turned around and looked at us and then he's carried on briefly and then he stopped again. And I can see this as clear as day, even though this is now 22 years ago, something like that. As he slowly turned towards us, he slowly started raising the weapon as well and got it to a position where it was pointing directly at us, you know. Um, so as I see this happening, and it, it very much happens in slow motion, um, I step to the left of the shield exactly like I've just worn my pal. The weapon is now directly pointing at me. He is pointing a gun at me. As far as I'm concerned, you know, it's a real weapon and it's loaded because you can't treat weapons in any other way. You know, you can't second guess them or look at them and go, oh, I think this might be a whatever. I think it's a toy. You know, it could be, it could not be. You know, that just doesn't enter the equation. So I, uh, I've i come into the aim position. The MP5 is in my shoulder. I've got a red dot sight on the top. I'm safety catch on fire. Finger on the trigger. And I put the red dot. Now, this is a red dot that stays within the sight. It's not like on the films where it projects a red dot onto him. He's about 40 metres away. I put the red dot onto the centre of his chest, which, if you remember, is our aim point, that the biggest, you know, body mass that you're most likely to hit under stress. Because don't forget, we've run off down the hill after this guy now. So we're puffing and panting. Plus, adrenaline is through the roof, presumably. I don't remember it being like that at the time, but it probably was. Um and squeeze the trigger and feel the slight recoil because it's a nine millimeter mp5 so there isn't a lot of recoil in it and i've fired them thousands of times before so i'm very ready for what it's going to feel like what it's going to happen but several interesting things happened at this point that i kind of now know why but i very distinctly remember them the first was it happened in slow motion now if you ever read up about you know psychology and um, stressful situations and that. Lots of people tell you it happens in slow motion. And for me this day, that's exactly what happened. The other thing is, I very much got tunnel vision, which was apt because he was on the mouth of a tunnel. But all I remember, it was like looking through a pair of binoculars, you know, and all I was focused on is that weapon because that weapon is what's going to do the damage to me. So, you know, I'm not really worried about his foot or his head or anything. It's just that weapon and what his hands are doing on that weapon. And it's very easy for me, very easy decision, because I'm an armed officer and he is pointing a gun at me in a firing position. So for me, it's absolutely black and white. I know what I had to do. The other thing is that I got what's called auditory exclusion, which is 
again, your brain is operating at maximum capacity. Now, I can tell you for me, that's not very high, but um, it decides the most important thing I need at that time in terms of my senses is my eyesight. So supposedly it gives me, you know, very good vision. It puts all my sort of brain power into my vision, which is probably why I got this sort of binocular view. Um, but more importantly, it basically shut my ears down. Now, that sounds ridiculous, but I'm telling you, I never heard the shot. Sure enough, my colleague next to me couldn't hear anything for about a week after this, but I did not hear the shot at all. So I squeezed the trigger and I fired off the first round. And the bad guy bends double the waist like he's been hit by a bullet in the guts, effectively. Now, he's still got hold of the weapon, but it's now pointing at the floor because, in my mind, the impact has knocked him back. And so, you know, he's still a threat. He hasn't dropped this weapon. He hasn't even got to stand upright. He can just raise that weapon from his bent over position and, and still point and fire it at us. So I waited a second because, remember, we're not the military. We don't fire off, you know, bursts of automatic fire. We fire single aim shots that we have to account for every single one. You know, first one could be justified, second one could be murder. So you really have to be sure. But don't forget, this is all happening at a million miles an hour. You know, it's not like I'm standing there and having a nice, you know, cup of tea and I think about what I'm going to do. And like I said to you before, this is the problem when these things go to court or complaints come in and look at this. You know, they have time to sit and consider and take in all these things. You know, we've got split second decisions to make. Uh, I was happy he was still a threat. Um, I'm also aware that I am probably blocking everyone else's shot from behind me because I am the only one who's in a position to take the shot, really, because unless my colleagues fan out behind me, you know, I am standing in their way. Um, so I put the red dot onto him again um, and squeezed off a second round. And there was about a one or two second gap, something like that, between the first and second shot. Now, this time he goes flying back through the air very dramatically, like something you'd see on a film, literally. He hits the wall of the tunnel, which is beside him and behind him. The gun sort of comes flying up into the air and then he, he still got hold of it. He slides down the wall very slowly before tipping forward onto his face. He ends up face down with the weapon just a little bit off to one side um, on the floor, but not in his hand now. And then he's completely still. Now, what they tell you in training is that if ever you're in a position that you have to take the shots or you're on a job and somebody does the shooting, they say that the whole world just stops for a second and you really need someone to kickstart the next process, of which we were very, can't speak, very well versed in. Um, and that's exactly what happened. The whole world just stopped. Everyone just stopped. And it was probably only a split second before my colleague said on the radio to the helicopter, shots fired, shots fired by police. We need an ambulance, please. And that, then he sort of cut off. But I didn't hear him say that, but I did hear it in my earpiece on my radio. And that was what it took for us all to kickstart. Now, like I say, the delay between the shots and us getting going was like, you know, two seconds, but it seemed like quite a long time. So we all ran forward, me leading now, um, and my aim was to get to him before he could get anywhere near that weapon. Now, 
To my horror, as I closed him down and got within about 10 metres of him, his hand started extending out, reaching for that weapon again. And I couldn't believe it because I thought, you know, I was convinced I'd shot him twice and I was thinking, please don't make me have to do this again. Because now it's very dark in the tunnel. The helicopter's not helping with its light because I can only see the slot. He was balding on top, so I could see sort of the lightness of the top of his head. But um, all, that's all I could see, really. Um, so from an aim point, I stopped and stood still. But I thought, he is going to get to that weapon before I can get to him and, and get it off him. So I stopped for a third time and raised my weapon and put the red dot on top of his head and started taking up the pressure on the trigger. And at this point in my mind, I thought, he's bleeding to death. This is his dying effort. And if there was any chance that he was going to survive, this third shot is going to finish it because this is right in the top of his head from 10 metres. I'm not going to miss. You know, I'm a good shot and I know I am. Um, you know, and I was thinking, this is it. This is this is final. But you don't have a chance to think about all the ramifications of that because you're obviously very much caught in the moment. So I'm taking out the pressure on the trigger and I must have been milliseconds away from the third shot being fired. And I'm screaming at him, don't move, keep your hand away from that weapon, do not touch that weapon. And he reaches out for the weapon. And I made a decision that if his hand curled up and took hold of the the trigger guard and actually got a grip on the weapon, then I'd take the third shot because then he's he's just got to pull the trigger and shoot us. Thankfully, his hand went up, got almost to the uh, pistol grip of the weapon, and then it's he slumped back and his arm fell back away from it and he was clear of it. So I was safety catch back on the fire and then ran towards him as fast as I could, which I made you know fairly quickly. Um, I kicked the weapon out of the way. One thing I tell you in training is never ever kick weapons. It's dangerous. Don't do it. Could go off and all the rest of it. Trust me, I would have done anything to get that weapon away from him. So I gave it a right good kick to get away from him. And I thought at the time the instructors won't like that, um, which is slightly bizarre given the scenario. But then we basically flipped him over. Now, at this point, he seemed almost unconscious and he was moaning and sort of groaning and not really coherent or making sense. So, again, this all kind of backed up in my mind that he's dying. You know, he's almost dead. And, uh, you know, we've got to try and do what we can to save him. At this point, one of the guys on the team who was our sort of advanced medic, he had extra training and gunshot wounds. He turned and sprinted back to the car to get the, the big first aid kit that had all our sort of advanced medical stuff in. Um, and we started stripping his clothes off and shouting at him, where are you hit? Where where does it hurt? Where does it hurt? Um, and we got, you know, he's laying on the train track now. He's on his back looking up at us. His eyes are closed. He's moaning. And we're, you know, stripping off clothes. We've got his top off. We've got his trousers off. And we're saying, you know, we're looking for, for entry wounds. We're looking for the gunshot wounds that we're sure is on him. And we're saying, you know, keep repeating. So where are you hit? Where does it hurt? You know, and eventually he, he sort of moans and says, my foot. So we kind of look at each other and said, foot, because we can't find any injuries in his chest area. There's nothing in his legs. We flipped him over to make sure we've not missed it in his shoulder or his back or, you know, even his backside or anything. There's nothing. There's not a mark on him. And eventually he says, my foot. So we get down to his foot and I was thinking, Christ, I'm a bad shot. Um, and we take his boot off. And sure enough, he's got like a gnarled up 
um, sort of deformed foot. And it turns out he had a club foot. It was something he was born with. Absolutely nothing to do with the fact that, as far as I'm concerned, I've just shot him twice. Um, and there was just no injury on him. At this point, the medic has now arrived back with us. And he's screaming at us, you know, where's he hit? Where's the entry wound? You know, and he's ripping out pads and he's, you know, opening out and he's ready to slap onto this sort of injury that, you know, he's pumping blood everywhere is, is how we imagined it and how he imagined it. Um, and we're saying, we can't find an injury. And he's saying, what, what do you mean you can't find an injury? You know, he's dropped. He's been hit twice. He's very clearly been hit twice. We all saw it. So where on earth are the injuries? But we could not find any injuries. So it was bizarre. So anyway, um, eventually we kind of pick him up. And now an ambulance has turned up at the top of the road at the what we call the RVP, the rendezvous point. And we he's handcuffed because he now seems conscious and he's actually walking okay, albeit he's just in his pants. Um, so we've got him cuffed up and we're walking him back up the hill and he gets put into a car and taken off to custody, you know, to the cells. He's been arrested. Um, I saw the, the, the silver commander, the, the tactical advisor, and he was walking down the, the train track towards me, you know, and he was typically, it was also his first firearms incident as a, as a, as a commander, you know, as a silver commander. So he looked very, very shaken. And, uh, I said to him, all right, boss, you know, and, uh, we forever called him Casper after that because he was white as a sheet and, he said, you know, who who fired the shots, you know? And I said, well, it was me, you know? And he said, you know, wow, you, you all right? You know, and I said, uh, yeah, I think so. And he said, what about the guy, you know? Is he is he dead? Is he off to hospital or what? You know, because bear in mind, this had just happened. So we didn't really, he didn't really know the update. And I said, well, he doesn't seem to be injured, you know? And I said, none of us kind of understand really what, what's happened, you know? And he said, all oh, right, that, that's good, you know, which obviously it was because, you know, no one wants to shoot anyone or kill anyone but still very confused so we basically headed off and then you have you know uniform cops that come down that you know put a, a what's called a scene on you know the police tape goes up and you have your kind of soccer your scenes of crimes officers that come down and start taking photos and what have you we went back uh, to the police station and it's quite uncomfortable certainly at the time for you know a cop who's fired shots because at the time, you were treated very much as a suspect, which is not a nice place to be, considering what's just happened. So um, my weapon was seized from me and uh, by a sergeant, and I had to uh, empty the magazine in front of him and count out the rounds. You know, it should have been 15 rounds in a the magazine. There was now 13. Um, obviously, two rounds short. And he said, he said well, there's, there's two rounds missing. I said, well, I know, you know, and this guy knew. I was like, of course there is, I fired twice, you know, there's no, I'm not denying that, there's no doubt in it, and we're still all in a little bit of shock, really, at just what has happened, but what should happen then, and this had just come into uh, into being, there was something called the, the PIP system that comes in after a police shooting, uh, and it's a post-incident procedure, and what happens is, you know, there is a preset thing that happens, you know, sort of four solicitors come out and speak to you. They potentially have like, you know, some a counsellor come out. Uh, the Federation, the Police Federation, you know, comes out, which is effectively like your union, if you like, that sort of looks after you in times of trouble. You know, um, this all should sort of swing into action. And it was a, a preset procedure, um, but it had never been used before in anger. 
and certainly the tactical advisor and the firearms commander, so that would be the bronze and the silver commanders. Um, or in fact, actually, the TACAD is is not a bronze, actually. That's the sergeant on the ground, if there was one, or certainly the sort of senior officer on the ground. Silver was the chief inspector, and there was a gold commander as well, which in this case was a superintendent, which is quite common. And um, he uh, he said, well, that you know, no one's been injured. There doesn't need to be this PIP system to come into place. Um but the silver commander and the, and the TACAD, the tactical advisor, very much pushed him that we really should do this because no one's been injured, but this is the perfect opportunity to run through that scenario. And at the end of the day, you know, one of our guys has still fired shots. Um, and most people at this point, including myself, were assuming that I'd missed him twice. But it just did not make sense because the way he'd reacted, you know, he'd bent double at the waist and then he'd gone flying back through the air. You know, what on earth made him respond to that if he wasn't shot? But then I couldn't account for why is he not injured? You know, it was just, as I say, very strange. And I had really mixed feelings because I've gone from being convinced I've killed this guy to, quite frankly, elated that I haven't even injured him to then thinking, well, actually, I've not done my job. You know, I'm a firearms cop and I needed to sort of neutralise this threat. And, and I haven't, you know, although you could argue I had. I mean, in some respects, it was the best possible scenario because, yes, I've had to fire shots, which is bad enough. But, you know, ultimately, um, no one's been injured. So really, it's a win-win. Uh, but, yeah, it left me very much with mixed feelings. Um, so what happens is you make quick notes in your notebook, but nothing too detailed because they say you should leave it 24 to 48 hours before you sit down and make a really detailed statement because it can take you that long for your brain to process everything that's happened. And then eventually we went on to do, you know, a sort of full debrief where we sat around and it was quite interesting to chat to the guys afterwards um, you know, all the team that had a good view on the guy at that time all had their weapons raised and, and said that they were actually, again, taking up the slack on the trigger, about to take the shot themselves when my shot rang out. And the only reason that I shot him before the others did, not because I'm clever or, you know, faster or anything like that, purely because I was pretty much at the head of the group. My colleague who was carrying the shield wasn't really in a position to fire. Um... So so it was down to me, you know, and that's that's why it was me rather than the rest of the team. But it was quite comforting for me to know that they were also feeling that that was the, you know, the action they needed to take. So I wasn't or I didn't feel quite so much out on a limb. But now starts a period of what can be quite a terrible time for a firearms officer in the press. You know, never appreciate this. Um, you, you know, you're potentially feeling bad enough as it is. And I was uh, offered, you know, time off. And perhaps I should take time off to take stock. It was made very clear that as far as we're concerned, you've done nothing wrong at all. But maybe you should have some time off. I spoke to one of the sergeants and he said, well, how long do you want? You know, and I said, uh, you know, kind of, I don't know, um, a week, you know, a uh, couple of weeks, you know. And he told me afterwards, some years later, that I could have asked for any time I wanted. So I kind of wish I'd said like, oh, three months, you know. But anyway, um, I think I said a week uh, and I was uh, packed off with my family down to like a welfare bungalow that the force held that was down uh, on the coast just for some time away from everything really and to sort of take stock on what had happened. Um, so you're probably wondering what had happened and I had to wait for um, some time. I think it was, I think it was three months or something like that. But, you know, with time, these things, um, you know, kind of get uh, lost in the midst of time, shall we say. Uh, 
a period of time anyway, maybe, you know, one to three months, I walked into the office at work and somebody said, have you seen the Soco report, you know, on your guy? And I was kind of like, no, you know, I've just come on duty. I've not seen anything. And they said, well, you might want to read it. So read through the report and looked at the photos that had been taken by the scenes of crime, the forensics at the, at the scene, because the guy actually had this, you know, obviously this assault weapon that was in place, but he also had a large pistol tucked down the, the back of his waistband. And they were both, you know, there's photos of that at the scene. And what they actually found was the first round that I'd fired um, had hit the bottom of the trigger guard of the weapon that he was pointing at me. Um, so that is why he bent double at the waist and sort of, you know, uh, was was effectively knocked over initially or or knocked, bent double if you like. Um, the second round was found in the butt of the rifle. So when he'd been knocked over and he was he was bent double but still had the weapon in his hands, um, still, you know, sort of pointing at us and I'd taken that second shot it had actually hit the stock of the weapon. That's the piece you put in your shoulder to point it. Um, and that is why he'd gone flying back through the air very dramatically and then, you know, slid down the wall and ended up in this crumpled heap. So it was the impact of the rounds that had effectively knocked him on his backside and knocked him over. But amazingly and thankfully, they didn't actually pass through the weapon and then on to him. So now it really was the best scenario because, you know, Suddenly I'd gone from somebody who, you know, couldn't hit someone to save their life, which, you know, is a good thing. But as a, you know, professional firearms officer, you do want to feel you can do your job. And I knew I was a good shot. I'd always been a good shot. Um, so I couldn't really understand why at that range that I'd missed. And I could only put it down to, you know, the stress and pressure of the night. Um, but I personally felt vindicated that, you know, the shots I had fired had been very much on target. And remember we talked about this kind of binocular view where all I was focused on is the weapon. It's quite common, apparently, for the rounds to hit the weapon or very near to it, because that is what all my eyes are focused on. You know, I need to know, is that weapon a threat to me and is it in a shooting position? Um, so quite often that's where your rounds end up hitting because you are drawn to that weapon. So, yeah, it turns out that both of them hit the weapon he was pointing at me. Um and yeah, he wasn't injured, so he uh, he eventually, obviously, went off to court and then prison, and and that was me. And we'll we'll talk about a bit more of the aftermath perhaps next week. But effectively, yeah, a pretty big deal. Um, and uh, my poor colleague, <laughs> who was uh, carrying the shield, his very first shift as an armed officer uh, was at a shooting, you know, and then went deaf for say at least a week or so because of the shots ringing out in his ears. But uh, yeah, quite um, quite a big job. So that's it. Episode thirty-two, shots fired, part two. Uh, hope you found it interesting. And um, yep, keep coming back for more. We'll continue on with a few more armed jobs, I think, next week, and then we'll probably move on to something else. Okay, thanks very much for listening. Take it easy. Speak to you all soon. Cheers. Bye.